Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Mrs. Robin Wardke, Editor-in-Chief of Sleepboard Magazine. Robin's career has spanned the medical device industry and includes the direction of clinical research administration, regulatory, and clinical quality roles. She has also participated in the development of marketing, educational, and patient-centered programs, primarily in the sleep industry. Her focus is on the patient's therapeutic journey and reducing burdens of care through support, education, health literacy, and the impact of social determinants of health. And with that, I'd like to welcome Ms. Wardke. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Why don't you start by telling us what a typical day is like for you? Well, I work from home. Uh, and um, I, my role is I'm the editor for uh, Sleep Lab, Sleep World magazine. And what that entails is getting authors, which I'm always open to having new authors. So if they're willing to send me something, I'd love to uh, to read and um, you know help the process along. And um, so, in addition to my editing work, uh, I'm also a consultant, uh, working for mostly startup medical companies, medical device companies in the sleep apnea space, sleep you know treatment space. Sometimes the the sleep diagnostic space. So it really depends. But um, and my role within those companies, because I like to work for smaller startup companies, is like I get to wear many different hats. Um, so I do put my clinical hat, so I can do clinical research administration. Um, I do, you know, preparation for uh, FDA submissions, help people with the quality system, um, making sure that, uh, you know, all the ducks are in a row. Working also, one of my passions is making sure that patients understand the information and the instructions for use are written in such a way that it's easy for them to follow and there's no no room for error or minimal room for error on the part of the patient. Uh, sometimes that um, requires doing you know some human factors type uh, research, reading and interpreting what was written. So that's a fun part um, of what I really, really enjoy doing is making sure that the patients have have actionable and and information educational information that they can use in their in their day-to-day living what do most people and indeed most entrepreneurs in the sleep health space not understand about the quality management system and the regulatory world around sleep medical devices well, in fact, I just interestingly, I just read an article. Do physicians understand the the regulatory process? And um, a lot of the answer is no. Um, I think there's some misunderstanding on on like for the majority of class two products, which a majority of sleep products fall into a class two unless they're an implantable, are cleared to market through the 510k or the pre-market notification process versus a pre-market approval, um, which are more things like life-sustaining and planable devices. Um, so again, the majority of our, our devices are cleared to market uh, through the 510k or the pre-market notification process. Um, we don't often, only about 10% of medical devices in the class two for the pre-market notification have to have clinical trial data. Usually it's um, in, the, in the form of substantial equivalence 
to a product that's already on the market. And that's how FDA determines the safety and effectiveness and looks at the risk versus benefit ratios and things like that, as well as maintaining um, one of the requirements is having a quality management system under 21 CFR Part 820 for FDA or the ISO 13455. Um, in in the medical device or the ISO world, um, specifically for medical devices, ISO one. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, there's a lot of technical jargon. Yeah, there, a, lot there's of... A, a lot of numbers, <laughs> things to remember, but uh, um, it's fun. I en I enjoy what I do. What piques your interest about sleep? Why did you decide to focus on that condition <laughs> in your career? <laughs> a good question. I don't think anybody chooses to go into sleep when you have you start your career. Um, I am a registered nurse by background, and I entered the field of sleep medicine um, in 1985, kind of through a happenstance of, of things that was like this was meant for me to be in this field. Um, I left hospital nursing and was working for a, a small company doing home apnea monitoring for high-risk babies. And the neonatologists we worked with were interested in learning more and doing full complete sleep studies versus just looking at respiratory and heart rate um, on a home pneumogram or in a hospital pneumogram, uh, the two-channel pneumogram. So I started my career in sleep doing um, uh, sleep studies on high-risk babies, four and five pounders, <laughs> all hooking them all up to electrics and everything. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there... Um, I worked in adult sleep, running a sleep clinic at UC Irvine um, in their medical center there, and then moved to Stanford and was doing SIDS research where we were looking at things like um, circadian rhythm development in the NICU, as well as um, we we're looking to see if, if babies don't thermoregulate. And so some of them, when, when they're found, are found to have a higher higher core body temperature. And so we were kind of looking at those data as well. And then I moved into the medical device industry um, after that. So it's 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 been a while. Nice. So you mentioned a couple of conditions. So sudden infant distress syndrome, other medical conditions that you focused on. What distinguishes sleep help as a science compared to a lot of perhaps subclinical complaints or conditions that patients may have? Well, I think, you know, everybody sleeps. <laughs> at least you hope yeah. everybody sleeps. So it's, it's like, you know, I, I kind of look at it as it's the umbrella that everybody has to be under. And without good sleep, I think people don't realize, a lot of people don't even realize when they're tired or sleepy. And it's not until maybe they're driving or doing something repetitive or sitting in front of a a lecture, um, especially at home on a webcast, yeah. <laughs> they start to get a little drowsy and they're sleepy. Um, I think one of the biggest, biggest misconceptions, oh, I, I sleep great the minute my head hits the pillow, I fall asleep. Well, that's not really a good thing. Um, there, There's a normal sleep latency, you know, 10 minutes should take us to fall asleep really when we're ready to go to sleep. So if you're falling asleep the minute your head hits the pillow, that means you're essentially too sleepy. Mm -hmm. um, you have, uh, you, you're showing signs of sleep deprivation. So sleep deprivation can come from many different things, um, can come from conditions such as obstructive sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, you know, certainly narcolepsy, um, 
you know, other other conditions that may contribute to sleep deprivation, comorbidities, cardiac issues, um, you know, any respiratory issues. So all of those, there's this bidirectionality between other chronic conditions and the impact that they have on sleep. Even even dermatological conditions that might cause itchiness during the night or or um, sleep deprivation can contribute to the release of stress hormones and things which can exacerbate some of these uh, dermatologic conditions. So it's really, it's just fascinating to me how much sleep and or the good sleep or the lack of good sleep or good quality and quantity of sleep can impact pretty much everything within our life. And that's what's exciting because and new things are coming up all the time. You know, recently, within the last 20 years, 20 or so years, you know, scientists discovered the glymphatic system, which is a system that cleans the brain out of the waste, you know, the waste products in the brain, similar to the lymphatic system. But it's also only works during slow waves, mostly works during slow wave sleep when we have, a, you know, big waveforms to push these waste products out and get uh, good products in basically. So it's very complicated, um, but it was very exciting because one of the waste products is amyloid betas, which can, you know, as you know, contribute to Alzheimer's. So it's exciting um, where you think about sleep as a therapeutic target yeah. for other conditions. So it's, it's fun, fun stuff. <laughs> no, it's very interesting. It's such a big part of our lives. At times a symptom, at times a disease, and now a potential form of therapeutic. I think with the push towards longevity, we're starting to look at sleep in new vein. Can you talk a little bit about how the longevity trend is redefining our perspectives on sleep and sleep hygiene? Well, <laughs> I think that, you know, there's always this misconception about, you know, we need less sleep as we get older and things like that. But we probably all still need that good seven to eight hours of sleep, which is recommended by most, uh, uh, I'll call it uh, professional sleep organizations, the National Sleep Foundation, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. But what we do, I think what we do see is changes in, in how sleep is expressed in terms of brainwave activity. Um, again, older people might take a nap during the day, which lessens their drive to sleep at night. They might go to sleep earlier, let's say, at eight o'clock and then they wake up at 3 a.m. and they say, I can't sleep, I have insomnia, but in reality, they've just shifted. And so, so working with them to understand, you know, again, you know, getting light in the morning, doing exercise, you know, limiting night, light at night, you know, limiting, you know, alcohol in, in the evening as much as you can, you know, you know, decreasing your caffeine intake, but all of those go into the sleep hygiene. And also people can call it sleep hygiene or good sleep practices, however you want to phrase it. But um, also, you know, bedrooms should be cool and dark and, and really shouldn't be, you know, when your iPad here or your phone or the TV or <laughs> the things that distract us from actually enjoying that feeling of falling asleep. It's like, <sighs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> You mentioned various sleep organizations and this trend now towards protocols and really distinguishing sleep as a science from the pseudoscience, which, to be quite frank, has been lagging in the overall healthcare community. 
Can you talk about the recent developments in codifying sleep as a medical society and establishing proper scientific protocols? So I think it was way back in, I think the 1979 was actually the first professional sleep society meeting um, hosted by Dr. Bill DeMent um, uh, and and the father of sleep medicine, if you would. And um, it was here actually in Palo Alto, California, near Stanford. And um, and so that was kind of the first thing that we need to come together as a before it was before my time. And so um, coming together as a profession and from that, then there was also what was called the APT then, um, which is was the Association of Polysomnographic Technologists. So it was kind of the technologist side. And then we had the professional MD, PhD side of things. But um, the sleep technology group now changed to the American Association of Sleep Technologists, which kind of helped them. We have guidelines, uh, policies and things like that, such as the AASM. And then in the dental world, you have the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine, AADSM. And so, you know, working together, it, it it's a science. I mean, we have tons of data to support all of these different brain changes and brain things that happen when we sleep. It's not, um, it, it's it's a profession, it's accepted as a profession, a scientific, um, we have, you know, the Sleep Research Society. So it's, it's, it's a profession that should be accepted and understood by all the other medical specialties out there. The, the problem is what we're seeing too, I think, is that, like I said, I didn't ever think to go into sleep how would I know there was a profession out there? Um, I just happened to fall into it, lucky me. And but a, a lot of people aren't going into the field of sleep medicine, and we're seeing, you know, we had an increase in sleep technologists. A lot of people are retiring or, you know, changing the profession. But we don't have enough sleep technologists to do the work anymore. And I think that I think there's a significant decrease in sleep physicians as well to accommodate the need for the millions and millions of people who are, you know, have a sleep disorder, who are undiagnosed with sleep apnea, um, who continue to be out there um, working and <laughs> driving buses and trucks and flying airplanes yeah. and things like that. But um, I think the important thing is uh, and and I'm a, as I said I'm a nurse by background, and we aren't taught really much about sleep or sleep yeah. medicine in nursing practice. And so, um, even still, recently there's been you know a push to increase the sleep education within within nursing curricula. So, we, I think, that's one of the things that I've been trying to do is is put articles, get articles written. Um, I have a, actually an article coming up in the American Journal of Nursing. Uh, in March. So um, I look forward to continue to spread the word about sleep and the importance of what I say, make sleep inquiry an always event, um, meaning that at every in, at every patient encounter, some people should mention, how are you sleeping? Do you feel like you get enough sleep? Are you rested when you get up? How quick does it, you know, how fast do you fall asleep? Um, but people use other words too, you know, oh, I'm so fatigued all the time or I just feel drowsy, or I have this general malaise, whatever it might be. Sometimes they use that to describe, because they're not sure that they're sleep deprived, but it manifests or in their brain different ways 
to to actually describe what they're feeling. I'm really glad you mentioned that because we talked about in earlier conversations between you and me about sleep advocates and having sleep advocates educate physicians, nurses, and the general patient population. Where do you see the role of a sleep advocate in, one, raising awareness, and two, helping to indoctrinate it into the traditional clinical encounter? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there's a credential through the Board of Registered Polysomnographic Technologies called the, uh, it's a CCSH, or it's a Credential in Clinical Sleep Health that nurses can, can actually uh, take the exam. It's a very rigorous exam and psychometrically developed. Um, also, dental hygienists can take this exam. Um, uh, really almost anyone can take this exam given if they meet the criteria. So I think that's in a way the first step to disseminate that that there is a credential out there that can be used within a practice of in a wide variety of roles. Um, more recently, there has been, a, a, I'm going to say a drive, but a, a movement, if you would, for um, acute care facilities to hire or en engage with sleep navigators within a within an inpatient environment. So that if somebody flags that they think a patient might have an issue or whatever, the navigator can go and meet with this patient, ask the you know ask the correct questions, and try to funnel them back into being to a sleep physician or a sleep clinic to to get diagnosed or to see if there's any other. Um, issues that need to be addressed from a sleep perspective. So, and there are certainly data now, I think, starting to come out that support the role of the sleep navigators reducing actually um, uh, poor outcomes in, in this population. So, and and the one thing we actually we actually have an article on sleep navigators coming out in in the Sleep World magazine on on how they how the navigators work in this environment but one of the things i think that stuck out to me is now they're they're not in a in a silo they're not in a sleep silo they're branching out and they're working with ot pt nurses you know pharmacists i mean a way a wide range of clinical professions that they were basically previously exposed to or or those professions weren't really exposed to what happens in a sleep clinic type environment does that make sense no, it makes perfect sense. And I think having that wide approach helps healthcare professionals up and down the patient journey really understand the importance of integrating sleep into the care. I want to perhaps transition to the other side, that of the patient, and focus on health literacy. As we mentioned earlier in the conversation, sleep is something everybody does. So I'm sure everybody has their own opinion, some scientific, some not. How do you navigate health literacy through the lens of science in a world of misinformation and an overabundance of maybe perhaps a quote-unquote frivolous information? No, it's very difficult. Um, even interest, there are some data to support the fact that even materials that are coming out from a sleep perspective is, and I'm sure across many different avenues, that the materials that are given to patients are are not actually at a readability level that they need to have. You know, I'll, I will often just pick up things, something, I'll see something online, I'll 
copy it and put it on and to see what kind of readability is because I'm thinking, oh, these big long words, people aren't going to read, you know, begin to understand it. So I think, um, you know, there's there's using plain language as one area that I think we can focus on that that resonates with most people. Um, writing, making sure that if we are writing patient facing materials that they are at a language and that they have um, like bullets and bold and box and things like that that point out really important things. You know, you can read blah, 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 but what's really important to you as the patient? What do you need? What do you really need to retain and know what's actionable for you? Um, you know, again, putting things into bite-sized pieces, using, I'll kind of go back to some of like um, motivational interviewing kinds of things. It's like, well, what happens if you don't do this, right? Um, yeah. How do we, you know, how, how get people to start to think a little bit different? So if they're not sleeping well, or if they think that they might have a problem, how can we get them to action that? You know, it's funny. I just saw something recently. It's like, we have all of these, you know, we've got all these gadgets and things and sleep, right? You know, we got ring, we got beds, we got, you know, home sleep tasks, we've got things to pick up the sound, we got apps for snoring, we got that. It reminded me of the um, Little Mermaid song, you know, I got gadgets and gizmos aplenty, mm. but I want yeah. more. But, yeah. you know, it's an, and, and every day I seem to think, I find that there seems to be more gadgets. The good thing is it does, has increased awareness on what people, they want to record the sleep, but I don't think we all we know quite yet what to do with all of these with all of these new consumer sleep technology, right? Yeah. Um, nearables, wearables, <laughs> things like that. So I but I think it I think from that perspective, people are are trying to understand better understand their sleep because they're starting to realize that it it is an important component of health. Actually, one of the foundations of health. I think one of the things we think about, I think about like a three-legged stool, right? You've got, you know, exercise, you've got nutrition, and the third leg of the stool could be sleep. And so any one of those legs get longer or shorter, you eat too much, you don't eat enough, you know, you exercise too much, you don't exercise enough, you don't, you know, you sleep too much, you don't sleep enough. And all of those things make the stool wobbly. So that's kind of how, yeah. how I kind of like to look at it. And, and people go in their mind, they go, oh, I get that. I yeah. get that that if you don't have enough sleep, my my body, my stool is wobbly. If I have too much sleep, I'm also wobbly. And, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with this called the U kind of U shape of sleep. Right. So in, in terms of hours of sleep. So if you get too little amount of sleep, there predisposes us to things like you know, diabetes and cardiovascular issues. On the other side of the spectrum, you get too much sleep. It might be indicative of other things like depression or other, you know, comorbid conditions. So really kind of the sweet spot or the cradle is the you, I call it, uh, yeah. that seven to eight hours of sleep. And, and but again, just making things simple and getting people to understand how important it is to not just, you know, mentally, but physically, you know, immune system, our heart, our endocrine system. I mean, everything is impacted by sleep deprivation. And, and, but I don't, I think people don't connect what happens at night impacts what's happening during the day sometimes. Yeah. I think connecting those dots, I think, is important for people too. And as you mentioned, connecting the dots requires a certain level of learning. You have access to quite a few resources through your 
organizations and through Sleep World magazine as well. Can you describe some of the resources that patients can leverage as well as some of the resources that healthcare providers can leverage? Sure. Of course, there's the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, which is the, you know, the medical association regarding sleep. Um, there are a lot of uh, patient resources, like, you know, patient education resources. I believe there is um, part of, I think you can click on a thing where it can help you to find a sleep specialist if you need that. Um, then again, in, from the dental side, because there's, you know, most sleep, a lot of patients for sleep apnea are treated with CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure with the, the, the mask that goes on and blows the air and splints the airway open. Um, some people use an oral appliance that brings the jaw forward and opens. So there's the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine. They also have resources on their patient education, but also resources to find qualified dentists. There's the um, National Sleep Foundation. There's the American Sleep Apnea Association. I mean, that's just to name a few. Also, I, I'm a big I like to look at government websites, and so there's a fair amount of information on the CDC website and the NIH websites as well. Um, but I think when pe people can just type in sleep, and I and I like to look at like what I find or what I feel is good information from you know from uh, like Mayo Clinic, from Cleveland Clinic, from Harvard. They often have will have sleep things on their you know, that you can avail yourself of in terms of getting the information that's needed. But I kind of find those resources, those were, those would be my go-tos <laughs> hmm. to, you know, other than PubMed, <laughs> um, right. to, to be able to find the information that I'm, that I'm looking for. Yes. One of the aspects of sleep that you focus on are the social determinants of health. We often use that phrase, perhaps overused at times. From a scientific standpoint, can you explain what SDOH in the healthcare realm of sleep actually means? Well, we think about the social determinants of health. You know, it's it's a broad spectrum of different things, and not everybody might have economic issues. They might have um, access issues because they live in a health, you know, you know, HIPSA kind of an area, health shortage professional area but they may be economically okay. So there are different ways, I think, to look at the social determinants of health. Again, not everybody has all of the different factors and I'm not a social determinants of health expert, but from a sleep perspective, when I think about the social determinants of health, the impact of sleep is that we forget to say, well, how are you sleeping? Where are you sleeping? Um, you know, people say, well, I, I live in a neighborhood where there's high crime. so although I have a bed to sleep in, I'm on edge all the time. Therefore, I don't get good sleep. You know, it's maybe a lower socioeconomic area. They're also finding areas that don't have green space, you know, adequate lighting, things like that, that can also impact someone's ability to, ability to sleep. Um, and, and the fact too, I think that people don't recognize that they actually have a sleep disorder because they're not exposed to the right Maybe the, you know, again, we, people aren't asking about sleep. So even yeah. if they do see a physician or a nurse practitioner, um, they're they're not being asked to, you know, 
do you have a sleep problem? Also, I think when we think about, when I think about so sleeping, we, we, I'm sure you, you know, you hear the term um, food desert, right? <laughs> so, but I like to think of these as sleep deserts. Yeah. That people don't have, that, that they don't have a place to sleep, that, you know, it's not necessarily that they might be, you know, unhoused, but even still they might have some place to go, but not have a good place to sleep in a, in a, you know, where the, in the environment in which we should be sleeping in. Um, maybe they're hungry, you know, they don't have enough food to eat. So it all kind of, I think to me, at least it all sort of kind of goes together that you can't, you can't ignore sleep within the context of the social determinants of health. Well said. I want to conclude with perhaps a bit of a controversial question, but I think it's important for the listening audience. Phillips made news lately, particularly for a very wide recall. And there's different angles to the story, different perspectives. Can you explain to us what's going on and what we can expect, particularly for those patients who are using Philips sleep devices? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, I think we in the sleep world um, have been paying a lot of attention to, to this issue. I mean, my husband's a CPAP user. I have lots of friends who are CPAP users. So um, we, you know, I think we've just sort of got, okay, this is a, this is a big issue. We need to address it. I know FDA just put out a class, I think it's a class one recall notice, a safety notice regarding this issue. I think people uh, should should be contacting, if they still have some of these machines, contacting their durable medical equipment company. I think that, you know, I I think that Philips has has information on their website to help to help patients through this issue. Um, unfortunately, I think sometimes people don't know what to do. And, and from what I was hearing, you know, the durable medical equipment companies didn't really know what to do and nobody wanted to be without therapy, but people were scared. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't really, I don't know enough about the, you know, the inside scoop, so to speak. I do know that there's some inquiry from the government accounting office actually recently um, uh, and was in, was asked to look at the FDA response to the Phillips recall. I just actually read about that yesterday or today. And um, so I think it's an ongoing issue, but I think people need just to be aware and there are other options for them. Uh, obviously, there are other manufacturers of CPAP devices that they can they can access. Um, certainly, oral appliance therapy. Um, you know, there's, and I'm sure everybody has seen, you know, all of the hypoglossal nerve stimulation therapy. So I think that the point here is that there there are other options uh, for patients, but they just need to, you know, and it's hard to find time to do these things, but to find to just to kind of find the right path for them. Again, it's hard for me to comment just because I don't know all of the ins and outs, mm -hmm. but that would be my, if I were, if I were advising a patient, I would basically say, you know, let's look and see what you have. Let's see if we can contact, you know, the company, let's contact the durable medical 
equipment company. Let's see, let's see what other options can't we can find for you, at least until this issue is cleared up. That's no, how well I would said. It, that's how I would respond. Yeah, it's it's tough for everybody all around. Um with the remaining time that we have, Ms. Wodeke, can you let the listening audience know, should they be interested in contributing to Sleep World magazine, how they can get a hold of you, and what type of articles you're looking for? Oh, we look for any articles related to sleep. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's interesting because, um, like I said, I, I just get, I, I really enjoy the variety that we have coming coming in. Um, we have an article coming from you. <laughs> um, so we'll look forward to that. And um, really, I like, I like, or we like articles that are kind of written in a very conversational tone, yet are actionable. Our main readers are sleep technologists. We have doctors, we have dentists. Um, I hope more and more nurses will start to, to be reading it. And um, we have a wide range, you know, wide range of topics from, um, oral appliances to heart conditions and sleep problems and dermatological problems in sleep. So really anything that people think would be interesting from a professional standpoint that other people would like to know that could help them in their practice are, are kinds of articles that, that I like to have. Oftentimes we don't have time to read all of the scientific literature you know, there's a lot of statistics and people kind of glaze over. So, <laughs> so the articles that, that I like to promote within Sleep World magazine are, again, those that are, that, you know, ring a bell with people that say, oh, I, I know I should be asking that or, oh, that's great. I'm going to implement that in my clinic or, you know, in talking to my patients. So that's the kind of thing that I like. So to get a hold of me, I mean, they can just actually go to Sleep World magazine. Um, There's a link there that says for authors and it has our contact information and they can get reach me uh, that way or it's just Robin at Sleep Lab magazine, which changed the name, uh, dot com. So they can can reach me there. Awesome. And Ms. Voidke, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been fun. Mm. Thanks for the opportunity.